Welcome to the Rising Giants with your host, Max and Dom, chatting with the boldest and most inspiring entrepreneurs and investors in the highest potential markets of Southeast Asia. The journey begins in Cambodia. This week, we talk with Robert Gronin, Myanmar director at One to Watch, where we dive deep into Myanmar, giving our audience an update on the investment situation in the country. Robert has been on the ground in the country, running incubation and investments for One to Watch since 2017, witnessing firsthand the rapid development and investor interest the country experienced in recent years. Prior to Myanmar, Robert has worked in Nepal and Mexico and is a keen frontier market enthusiast with a strong passion for impact investment. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about the startup and venture capital ecosystem in Southeast Asia, subscribe to our free Rising Giants Substack newsletter linked in the show docs. Each week, we highlight a recap of the episode, job opportunities, entrepreneurial resources, and links we like, as well as notable VC deal flow and startup news from every country in the region. And now, back to Robert. So, Robert, thank you so much for coming on Rising Giants. Really appreciate you taking the time. Um, first of all, we really like to just dive into people's background in the beginning. So it'd be great if you could just tell us um, how you ended up within the impact investing sort of frontier market space um, and what your journey was um, to working out one to watch. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, uh, Max and uh, Dominic for having me on the show. Um, I'm glad to be uh, talking a bit about, uh, about my journey here. Um, yeah, to, to keep it brief, um, I, uh, my background is in uh, finance and economics, studied in, uh, in the Netherlands and in the United States, um, then uh, moved to London, uh, worked there in the financial sector uh, for a while, um, and in Mexico City uh, for a Dutch, uh, Dutch bank and, and leasing company. And uh, while I was there, uh, I got really interested in uh, social entrepreneurship uh, in the sense that entrepreneurship that follows uh, the, the business dynamics has a, a profitable business model, um, but at the same time targets a, a specific um, uh, environmental or social goal. There's two types to that. Uh, one in frontier markets, uh, particularly uh, any almost yeah, many, many forms of, uh, of entrepreneurship there would qualify because the impact on, on, on people's lives can be very uh, big. And of course, um, in developed markets, you also have certain models, uh, but there it's more of a more of a niche, I would say. Now, because I was still uh, young or at the early stage of the career and, and looking to explore the world, I decided to focus on the entrepreneurship in um, uh, uh, emerging markets, in frontier markets first, and then to later see if that, that could be applied anywhere in the world. Um, so I followed a long uh, sort of journey of search of talking with, with many people, seeing what was going on in, in the space. Um, and then I came across around six years ago, uh, a small company uh, called One to Watch um, that was operating in Nepal at the time, uh, founded a few years before, uh, and it was connecting local entrepreneurs to impact investors from around the world, uh, particularly from the Netherlands, because that's where the founders were from. Um, and um, combining those investments also with support to the entrepreneurs to really uh, build that uh, uh, together. And yeah, at the moment I, I, I saw the, the short little movie about how they were planning to do this um, even before 
reaching out to them. I started telling everyone that I was going to work there and that this was awesome. Um, so, and then, uh, yeah, I, I went uh, a few months later, I went to Nepal, uh, worked with them uh, for, uh, uh, for around seven months out there, both in the investment side of things and in the acceleration side of things, business advice. And um, at the end of, uh, or middle of 2017, we decided to expand. Uh, we found Myanmar's football market. So then uh, we started it there, following the same model, combination of investments and, uh, and, and, and support to businesses for them to scale. Um, and that, that was the basis for, uh, for operations in Myanmar. Okay, great. And what was it like transitioning from uh, Nepal to Myanmar? And how did that help with like, you know, understanding, I guess, frontier market development? Yeah. Uh, it was a very, so the, the level of, of Myanmar and Nepal, if you look at certain indicators, like the average, uh, uh, average income of, of people uh, was rather similar. Um, but at the same time, the way that the country got where it is today, or let's say where it was a few years ago, um, was very different. In Nepal, it's been um, uh, the way it currently is, for a bit of a longer period. Of course, they have seen uh, many conflicts, but um, in Myanmar, um, the country was actually one of the richest country in Southeast Asia in the in the 50s after the, uh, yeah, after after the, the, the British left and, the, and um, the period when Myanmar had a, a brief period of um, uh, sort of democracy um the country was doing quite well in terms of agriculture in terms of trade um and in terms of the size of the economy um it was doing well after the military took power um and they started sort of a, a, a socialist uh, policy um uh, nationalizing many uh, businesses uh cutting itself off from uh, the rest of the world uh development completely stalled and um, uh, so almost no innovation, almost no development took place for around 50 years, while all the countries in the region, uh, especially in Southeast Asia, grew tremendously. Um, so, uh, and at the same time, the education system in Myanmar was not really focused on teaching people things or at, and in any case, not to help them to sort of innovate or to, um, uh, to, to think for themselves, to come up with creative initiatives, but actually to sort of follow uh, the, the lead of, of the leadership. So what you saw at the moment, even though the level was the same, is that the population had a very share at a very low education. Generally, there were also not so many people coming from abroad who studied abroad who came back. Uh, there were some, but there were simply not as many people abroad. So uh, that uh, proved many challenges. So there were no innovations. Things were doing very much the old school way in agriculture with, with technology. Um, at the same time, uh, and yet this, this low educated workforce generally. Um, and then at the same time, Myanmar has this huge uh, advantages in terms of the geography, how they're located, uh, the, the, the location of their ports, connections to the countries and it's a, a large country with a lot of resources so it's really a, a sort of pot that's being kept down for a long time suddenly ready to uh, explode which create uh, created a very promising uh, vibe um, 
And that's why people thought that sort of the golden times would come very quickly. Uh, but then because of these systematic problems in infrastructure, in, in labor force, um, that was a lot more difficult to, to develop. And that was very specific to, to Myanmar. When you arrived in 2017, can, could you kind of um, set the stage for how the investment landscape looked when you arrived and then you, you started getting involved in um, Rockstart uh, Accelerator right. as well? And, and I believe actually making, and making investments in the country. So maybe just talk us through like how it um, how the situation was upon upon arrival in 2017. Right. So uh, when I arrived there, the the country was still sort of in the the, the promised land. Uh, everything still looked looked great. There were it was this great global story of how you get from a military dictatorship to a democracy with uh, uh, with a Nobel Prize laureate um, at the, at the leadership population that, that want to build things. And uh, what you see was that it attracted quite a lot of attention from, uh, from, from investors. Um, although the first, so the first wave of investors who really thought we're gonna make sort of a quick buck in this country, uh, they came in 2011, 2012, 2013, and they already were faced with, okay, this is not gonna be that easy because of the lack of infrastructure, workforce, all the same issues um so the, the the but still companies were seeing it as a golden opportunity but only for those who uh are willing to 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 stay for the long haul so if you stay here for at least let's say a year or 10 um and you are really dedicated yourself on the ground to understand what's happening and to, to support the, the companies to invest in then there's still this huge uh, opportunity so there were some but um those investors were generally quite struggling to find um, investable companies. That's why uh, we started uh, um, running accelerator programs to, uh, to support those companies, to make the pool of investable companies larger. Uh, that was a bit the scene. And then soon after I arrived in uh, like a few months later, this, the, the crisis um, uh, with the Rohingya uh, population started. Uh, and then, of course, the, the, the mood rather quickly uh, shifted, not necessarily within the country that much, but for sure, uh, the way it was seen by the rest of the world and also for, for Western investors as well, Western companies, they, they were a lot more reluctant to enter the market. From my understanding, 2019, 2020 did also see um, quite a lot of new investors enter the market and maybe private equity funds being raised focused on Myanmar, for instance. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, so although the um, the, the crisis, uh, the the events around the the Rohingya population um, put a slowdown on it, so new companies, particularly from from Western countries, were uh, coming in, uh, in in lower amounts, and uh, those were offset a bit by uh, tourism and investments from uh, Asian countries um so in in general the space was still going up but also from from western backed markets at some point um uh, 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 investment started indeed coming back growing um because also the opportunities that were in the market and uh, you had a bit of a, a, a increased amount of due diligence that you had to do so when you do transfer you had to prove that it was not linked to the military that it was not linked to companies that were involved 
um, in the atro atrocities that, that happened. Uh, so if you could show that it had nothing to do with that, then yeah, you could grow. And so indeed you saw uh, that it was picking up and that people had a bit more realistic expectations uh, in that time. So that was actually quite a promising setup. You saw that larger investors were standing on the side, looking what was going on. Uh, the whole scene was sort of craving for some success stories to come out of Myanmar. And since the investment started a bit in 13, 14, 15, especially picked up then in, in 16, 17, 18, you kind of towards 2020, you were some some of the companies started working a little bit towards an exit and everybody was looking at that. And if that would have proven uh, to be successful, that would have been a great catalyst, I think, for more funds to come in. Um, and then there was an increased pool of, of companies, the infrastructure slowly creeping forward. Um, so then that 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 was already creeping up, but the, the real potential was going to come in a few years from now, probably, once sort of that first trial and, and error uh, had gone through. And that would have been a very promising time for Myanmar. Just quickly, you mentioned a few times now your, your point about infrastructure. Could you just give a few examples so um, the audience can sort of understand, like, you know, how hard it was to, you know, maybe launch an internet business five years ago with, with something like um, the internet speeds and these kinds of things that were holding, holding the country back? If you could just dive into that a little bit. Yeah. So what you see, so, so there's two things. There's the internet infrastructure and there's the fiscal infrastructure. The internet infrastructure rose very quickly um, from like 2013 to 2016, 17. The, the data was suddenly everywhere. Uh, SIM cards uh, were instead of two hundreds of dollars, they became uh, $1 per price. Internet was actually good. You could make, when I arrived, you could already make video calls uh, from a driving taxi on, on the 4G, which was, which was very cheap. It even remote, uh, reached remote areas. So uh, that basic infrastructure was good, um, but the understanding of, of, uh, of the most people in, in uh, Myanmar of uh, how to use the internet to actually increase your productivity or to actually uh, use certain tools or make, make your life better, uh, that was rather limited. So people used it a lot, mainly to read on Facebook um, or uh, yeah, simply simple news or, or games that they did. That, that went very quick, but the actual sort of digital infrastructure to, you know, to make your life better, um, that, that crept up only very slowly uh, in, the, in that period. And of course, that, that would, you would expect that that would rise rather soon. So now some telehealth apps, um, or some uh, sort of bookkeeping apps or some, uh, of course, ride hailing apps, things like that, that, that you see that that uh, um, has improved quite a bit over the years, but it's still not really reaching mass uh, adaptation. It's really still uh, a niche. Um, and then you have the, the physical infrastructure where uh, that's, of course, a lot more difficult to, um, uh, to develop. So you see islands of development, like for example, the telecom infrastructure, which you can just build without developing the whole infrastructure of the people. You can even fly in your engineers or you can just build it. And in a few years, you can build the, the, the world-class systems in Myanmar. But once you interact with the whole economy, uh, that's a lot more difficult to do that quickly. Leading on from that, what, what were some of the sectors when you originally arrived in 2017, 2018 that 
that you were most excited about and most focused on um, finding both an impact and financial return within? Yeah. So we are focusing on two sectors mainly. Uh, one is the clean energy sector, mainly the off-grid renewable energy uh, sector. Uh, and the other one is agriculture. Um, and um, yeah, those were the two sectors we were focused on. How did that story sort of unfold? Were you mostly doing acceleration? And, and what about some of the investments that you, made, that you may have made within those sectors? So in... Um, um, in the agricultural sector, uh, we looked at that first. Um, there were some promising companies, also some of the companies that raised uh, investments from, from other, uh, uh, other sources there in, in drying technologies, for example, um, in uh, some, some larger scale, uh, for example, coconut farms uh, that were being produced. Um, but there you uh, struggled quite a bit with the agricultural sector is very dependent on the physical infrastructure that is in place. So if you uh, have to build uh, the whole, um, uh, if, if you either you uh, perform one specific task in the value chain, but you're hugely dependent on the rest of the infrastructure. So you saw that companies were struggling with that to meet certain demands efficiently enough to go to the, uh, to the international market and in the local market, you had either the mass market, but that was that was driven on, on sort of very low quality products or the uh, more premium market that was was rather small. So that was uh, quite quite difficult to move into or you were uh, running the whole chain. So from growing, um, uh, harvesting, processing uh, to even doing the marketing and sales. But then you saw quite a few companies doing that. Uh, but those uh, struggled, of course, to, to reach to scale because at some point you need to invest in all the different elements, uh, which is then not possible looking at, at the size of your company. So they had to, to specify and form partnerships, but because there was a limited availability of it, uh, that was quite uh, challenging to obtain. So in the end, we could not yet make uh, investments in that, um, uh, in that space, although we were um, uh, still planning to, to take that forward. But what we started focusing on more than was on the, uh, the off-grid renewable energy um, space, mainly focusing on, on solar assets. Uh, you have broadly three categories uh, in that that we were uh, focusing on. One is mini grids connected to either uh, anchor loads, so for example, uh, telecom towers or to villages or to combination of those in, in some cases, uh, or solar water pumps or um, CNI, so uh, uh, um, uh, solar panels on, on rooftops of, of, of fish farms or other types of factories that could also be on, on, on grid um, uh, places. And uh, the investment we were on the brink of making, uh, already done our capital calls, all the documents uh, were drafted, uh, were in a solar developing developer uh, who built grids uh, connected to uh, villages um and that was a very it's still a very promising space and even in a country like Myanmar where infrastructure is, is difficult and uh, that also proved um very promising combination of impact and uh the the room for financial return what about the other sectors was that an intentional decision to just focus on um agriculture and energy did any other sectors um look of interest to you or was that just a yeah strategy because of the, the country dynamics? No, it, it, it did. So uh, we were, because of our mission, we were focused mainly on basic 
needs. Now, basic needs is a very broad uh, term. Um, so what we, some categories that we identified within that was electricity, uh, food, healthcare, and education. Of course, there are more, but we uh, looked at those four in particular. Um, and what you see with um, uh, some services that are really on the cross where the, where the, the government is very heavily involved. Uh, so for example, in education, which goes by the public uh, uh, sector um, and with healthcare, of course, as well, uh, then either you are very much, um, yeah, dependent on, on what the government is doing. It becomes a whole ballgame by itself, or you focus on the very premium uh, users, right? The private schools, private hospitals. Um, with the government, that was quite rather complicated to really sort of grow a startup in, in that space in, uh, in Myanmar, it's possible, but then you really need to focus on, on that specifically. Um, and the private areas that was uh, not really aligned with our mission at the moment. Um, in agriculture and uh, off-grid renewable energy, we saw that combination more where you could have a scalable enterprise uh, not really dependent on um, uh, per se directly or dependent on, on government um, uh, uh, policies, although you played with them, but generally they, they wanted to, to boost it, uh, boost those sectors. Um, so yeah, for us, those were quite natural sectors also where we saw a lot of entrepreneurial activity happening. Uh, and okay. also because, yeah, just to, to uh, conclude, um, uh, in, in Myanmar, it had, especially in the agri-sector, that's really where Myanmar has the natural advantage in terms of geography, where it's located, also in terms of climate and, and, and landscape, has a lot of potential there, and where the technologies in the last 60 years have grown tremendously all over the world in both clean energy and agriculture, but not in Myanmar, it's, it's been stood, stood still, so that provides an enormous opportunity for the right type of investment. And when was the last time you were you were in Myanmar yourself? When did you um, uh, leave the country? In, in March 2020. So we we uh, um, we left the country uh, just when uh, all the flights started closing for uh, Myanmar uh, due to some some health reasons as well. Um, so then we went back to Europe. Uh, then we uh, planned our return uh, for uh, the 28th of February of this year. Um, and uh, had everything lined up, the visa and the flight. And then when early October the coup happened, that all got uh, unfortunately canceled. So uh, yeah, the last time I've been there was March, 2020. If you could talk, talk to us a bit about some of these, um, I guess, early warning signs that maybe some of these investors may have seen um, leading up to the, the, the events of, uh, you know, February, March, 2021. What were, what were you sort of anticipating? Was, was there any anticipation from investors that there could be a serious uh, political crisis brewing? Yeah. Uh, well, the, the short answer is that, that um, not many people saw it coming. Uh, people expected um, hiccups to take place in the, in the pathway towards uh, democracy. And everybody knew that Myanmar was never... Uh, in the last, uh, let's say, 10, 10 years, uh, a full democracy. Everybody was very much aware of it. So everybody knew that uh, the military, if they wanted something, either on a macro scale or on a micro scale, uh, if you were competing with your business against somebody from the military or related to it, you know, you, you could be very easily be in, in trouble. Um, uh, and also if there would be a conflict between 
the military uh, and the civilian uh, government that that is a very dangerous uh, situation. Everybody was aware of that. But um, precisely the fact that the military could step in at any time, take over anything they wanted, uh, but the fact that they were kind of you know, not in the spotlight, in the, in the, in the back, um, uh, uh, yeah, they, they could keep on to, to everything they had uh, uh, gained financially, let's say, over the last 60 years. They were not at risk for prosecution, at least not, not, not really at the time. So uh, it seemed very unlikely that they would actually take this step. Um, so, so nobody really saw that coming. I mean, not, not many people. Okay, and since, since these events have unfolded over the last, um, well, really, I guess, over the last year in 2021, um, how have you been uh, sort of keeping in touch with some of the investors in the market? And how have you seen the sentiment decline? And, or if there are still people on the ground that are looking to still uh, play a role in the ecosystem? Yeah. So, um, yeah, right after the coup, um, People were quite, everybody knew this was very bad news, but to what extent this would really disrupt the whole country was not immediately clear. So everybody kept on a, on a wait and hold. There were a lot of calls between us and other investors and, and between the investment community as a whole as to how to respond to this. And everybody was uh, just you know not, not making any uh, quick actions, just seeing how it would, things would unfold. Um, early signs were not not good when they started focusing on on um, curtailing internet freedoms. Um, so then you already saw that that would make the context more more difficult. Uh, it really changed when the violence uh, started increasing um, in in let's say end of February and, and in March. That was a, a switching point where there was not really a way back anymore for the military um so they um uh then you kind of knew okay this this situation is going to go back to you know some form of shape like how it used to be in in the 90s uh it, it, even though the, the the main generals were saying like we're, we're pro-business we're going to continue things we you could see that that was not going to happen so uh, then you saw quite a big split between investors that could rather easily um yeah move out or put things on hold they mostly did so and the ones that were already uh more closely connected to the country that had made um investments in the country already that had larger funds raised committed specifically to myanmar um those are and and still today uh those remain committed to the country but are, are treading very carefully to see because it's still extremely unclear uh, where things are going if investments that have been made are at risk, uh, whether you know they will at some point be targeted specifically. It, it seems unlikely now, but uh, it's, it's very difficult to say. So most people try not to make new investments at the moment, but sort of wait it out, but also not make any rush decisions to completely pull out or... Uh... Okay, and just touching on, I guess, your more area of expertise, the impact investment community, and maybe you know some of the DFI money that was um, looking at the country. Do do you think that will really um, slow down very significantly? 
Well, um, yeah, it, it, I, I think it will slow down uh, now. Um, the thing is, everyone, including the DFIs, uh, they will want to continue, I think. So um, it means that, you know, if possible, they will continue to be committed to Myanmar and to make new investments. Now, that uh, if possible side of the answer uh, is rather complicated, though, because you don't want to be in any way related to the army uh, or to any of the businesses directly related to the army. Now, since the army is at the moment the government, uh, the de facto government, at least, um, that's hugely complicated, right? So you, you would invest in a country where you don't, you're not allowed to interact with the government on any, pretty much on, on any level. So that's very difficult. Also the, the uh, costs of, and the time that you would have to reserve for, uh, to do the, the proper due diligence have, have risen. So it's really becoming more of a, some, some people call it a minefield. Like it's, it's a lot more difficult to, um, uh, to, to, to go through, to continue. So most people would, you know, who are committed to Myanmar as a fund, as a, uh, as a DFI, sometimes as an entrepreneur, they are looking all for ways to continue. Um, and, I, and I hope that, you know, in the coming months, there will be some more clarity, maybe in certain areas, if, if the, the complete fate of where the country is going to go in the coming five, 10 years is not yet fully clear, but at least you could say like, well, at least this sector is going to be kind of unchanged, right? And there we can do things or in this sector, it's, it's, it's possible to work in it. If, if a common understanding between DFIs, investors, entrepreneurs exists there, uh, okay, the, the military might do horrible things in some place, but here we can do some kind of business. Then at some point you could move forward with that. And, and it's probably going to happen at some point um but it's still not clear when uh that's going to happen so investors are still waiting i think for uh for for that moment yeah i can understand what you're saying i mean even even with the sectors that you've looked at they're a bit more um decentralized and you know more focused on some of these um less sort of uh maybe maybe would be more rural um exposure and such but i guess what one other follow up to that would be um how do you think it sort of shifts the balance between sort of the impact of the DFI money versus sort of the purely financial money and maybe some of the other Asian investors, China's commitment to the country, um, and maybe some other um, more financially focused investors that do not really involve themselves too much with um, social and political considerations. Um, right. How do you think that shifts that balance? Well, I mean, I think at the moment, if you continue uh, to invest in, in, in Myanmar, um, in, in Myanmar, the, the, the difference between sort of impact investing and uh, regular investing always has been, um, yeah, tr tricky to make, right? We, uh, we might talk a bit more about that uh, later in, uh, in, in this podcast. But uh, if you at the moment invest in a company that provides services in, in Myanmar and that you, you know, keep uh, committed to the sector, I think you can rather easily... Um, as long as you follow the, the sort of uh, ESG standards and thus don't don't benefit directly the uh, and ideally not indirectly the, the regime and the cronies, but you keep on having opportunities for the rest of the population, 
that would have that would be hugely impactful by itself um, uh, by definition and I, I think uh, the more impact oriented stories yeah I'm, I'm not necessarily sure if that would be different if you like impact investments were focused for example indeed on clean energy decentralized these things might in a way be even even relatively easier now um, uh, but anywhere where you depend on a on an ecosystem that functions properly uh, or infrastructure that that is improving over time is just very very difficult now uh, I guess how during this time are you um, are you going about seeking new opportunities in what countries of interest uh, is one to watch it, um, looking into yeah. So for us at the moment, um, we are looking uh, mainly at Nepal and Bangladesh. And in uh, Myanmar, we have put operations, unfortunately, on hold um, for May end. So that means that uh, we have not started any new programs. And uh, the investment that we were on the brink of making, uh, we um, that's all sort of rounded off. All documents are there. Due diligence is there. Uh, the capital is still there. Uh, so as at the moment that anything there, um, uh, so that the country is ready to um, uh, ready for scalable investments in in this case in off grid uh, energy or off grid renewable energy uh, development, uh, then we would step into back into uh, Myanmar. Um, but it's important for us, since uh, that would be our, our first investment in um, Myanmar, that, that the only way that that investment makes sense um, from, a, from a business perspective is, is that if, is, if that's the groundwork uh, for a much larger fund uh, to arise. And for that, you will need a certain level of, um, uh, of predictability, of regulations um, uh, that... Yeah, we work with private investors mainly at the moment. Uh, they're all willing to take risks, uh, but they need to understand more or less how that can go. And it cannot be that with one um, uh, one push on a, on a button, that whole investment is suddenly no longer there. Um, so it, 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 we, we want to see that the government has, uh, the de facto government at, at that point has uh, incentives to to keep those investments untouched um, so that more, of course, more investors then later see that as an, as an example to come in. At the moment, that's not yet the case, uh, but that might be at some point in the future. Then we will step into, into Myanmar. Maybe to take a step back out a little bit, uh, within the private sector, how would you see the overall sentiment of investors shift over the last year? Um, what would you say have been maybe some of the more countries that are in focus or, and maybe if you could touch on a sector or, or two that you think are um, at the center of change changed too. Um, yeah, so I think um, in, I've mainly seen uh, this in, uh, uh, within, within Myanmar itself. Um, I think, I mean, I think Bangladesh has uh, definitely moved more to the to the, to the front row, and Nepal uh, has as well. Although, um, yeah, the government has to um, be more facilitative. Doesn't look at at sort of foreign investment as, as something scary. It's actually 
um, uh, helping them to reach the, the, the objectives. Um, in Myanmar, I think a, a, a lot of different um, sectors were, were booming. And um, the last year with, with COVID, um, I think it, yeah, it, it hit Myanmar in, 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 in a few different uh, waves. So it was a bit difficult to predict, but then the, uh, some of the startups in, 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 in food delivery, uh, Tila, um, um, like digital healthcare uh, really started taking off a, a bit more, I guess, by, as expected, as you see all, all over the world. Um, investments in, um, in, in infrastructure also slightly continued, but it, it just went rather slow. Um, so yeah, what sector specifically sprung out uh, apart, from, apart from agriculture and, um, uh, and clean energy that we've been talking about, yeah, it's those it's those sectors, but it it, it went slowly. There, there's no uh, quick wins apart from if you are operating in a in a kind of standalone niche um, within uh, yeah within the country. How about in Cambodia? Since we're a Cambodian com- uh, podcast, it'd be great to hear about uh, maybe your perspective in the country. Yeah, I, I've not uh, I've not unfortunately not uh, been in Cambodia. Uh, we've re- briefly looked at uh, at it, but uh, yeah, I'm sure Max here on the on the podcast will uh, <laughs> will be able to to talk more about that. Uh, for yeah, I'm very interested in in it as a as a country to to learn more to what what is possible, where the opportunities uh, are uh, within those those same sectors. I think there's many similarities to Myanmar. It, it might also have similarities to Nepal, as in that it's been open to the world for much longer, for a few decades. And so more players are on the ground, but then you might also see more of the more traditional, um, uh, let's say grant-based models that are there. So that might p- provide some uh, difficulties at, in some ways as well. In Myanmar, you didn't, you didn't really see that uh, as much. Um, but yeah, I'm interested to learn more about it, but uh, it's for me not easy to compare that. Understood. And so talking about your background and uh, one to watch as well as some of the market challenges and opportunities that we've gone through in the region, I think it would be a great time to shift gears and talk a little bit more about your, uh, some of the inter- introspective things that in part of that, you probably have instilled some habits or uh, routines that have you know kept you on track and has kept you focused. What are some of those, if you could comment on that? Um. Yeah, so, so I think for me, um, it's really about uh, linking uh, those, um, uh, this, this sort of plan. If you, if you identify the, uh, the, the sort of goals that you're working towards, the, the main things that you're developing, um, just to make sure that on the one hand, uh, you sort of block time, uh, like in a day, if block a few hours that you're not doing anything but focusing on, on the larger long-term plans, not on the daily fires. Uh, and at the same time, have ideally every day. With COVID, that became usually complicated, of course. You could do calls, but um, talk to everyone uh, in the team one-on-one. Uh, how's it going? Um, what, what are you, what challenges are you facing personally or in, in the company? tried every week to speak 
with everyone from uh, the investment officers or the program managers to the interns uh, and to do quickly that alignment and whether their role is, is being clear. Uh, that was also important because we started really a bit as a, as a startup where everyone was you know, going as where it went. So there was something that needed to happen. Then who takes it up? I'll take it up. Okay, bomb, go. Then somebody else would come. I'll take this up, go. And that's fine when you are with three, with four. But when at some point we grew to nine, uh, nine people, um, that became completely unmanageable. Sometimes three people were running behind the same uh, issue. And, um, and then a lot of fires started happening. And in, in uh, my case, um, the, at some point, some, some days, that the, the time that you were spending on, that I was spending on firefighting and admin tasks, absolutely had to happen that day i would say it was around 80 percent and uh, the actual thing that you that i had to do in order for the long-term success of the organization uh to to work on the strategy on the partnerships on fundraising of of investment capital as well as uh, um, uh sales on on for for opex it's uh that that then drowns and that that will be a death sentence for the organization soon. So we really focused on dividing responsibilities, making sure that was clear for everyone. Um, so that became a big focus out of pure uh, need. Uh, but then once you do it, it, it feels really good. Yeah. yeah, once you successfully institute those kind of pra business practices uh, and things start to flow a little bit cleaner, it, it, there's, there, there's no better feeling than that. Um, working in the impact space, and you know that's a, it's a, it's a little bit of a, a niche area, and I think a lot of people, especially nowadays, are very interested in uh, diving into the space. What would you say are some resources, or maybe a book that you've read that's really inspired you to either go into the space or you know continue down this track of um, focusing on impact? Yeah. Well, I, I would say um, the book, I don't know if, uh, I hope you read it, but um, it's more about economics and development of a country as a whole. It's uh, uh, called Why Nations Fail. Have you read that? Yeah, um, I've read that, yeah. I've read it, yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, it's it's uh, uh, it's pretty much describing why, uh, in, a, in I think a quite comprehensive way, not taking shortcuts, going from the middle ages until all the way until now, uh, describing why uh, some yeah, countries su succeed in certain ways. And, 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 uh, uh, and it really focuses on, on one hand, how a, a country needs to be structured so that both the government and the people have incentives to sort of build their lives, to, to, to build uh, parts of society, uh, to, to start building their company, improving their own life and the lives of the community with that. Do people really have the reasons to do that? Or should they actually sort of keep low or be corrupt? Or, you know, is, is that in their best interest? And how you can structure a country so that you get uh, to that. And that was, um, uh, really interesting. And I think if you look at uh, frontier markets, they face often these problems with the institutions that are not effective with um, 
yeah, very difficult dynamics. And that book was really fascinating to me. Great. That's definitely one I'll have to put on my list. Um, and I guess the, for our clo- traditional closing question, uh, we like to ask our guests, uh, what is the most important advice that you've ever been given? Um, I would say let's, let's split that in, in two. Uh, <laughs> uh, one advice from uh, Steve Jobs and one from my grandparents and quite uh, on different levels, I would say. Um, now, the one that I really tried to, uh, that I was quite fascinated about and tried to use pretty much every day for the last uh, eight or nine years uh, is um, what Steve Jobs said, that you follow um, you on deciding what to do next on a small or, or bigger level, especially on a personal sort of career focus, is you find something that you find really fascinating to work on. And at the same time, that somehow is useful for society or for certain people. It doesn't, you don't really need to know exactly where it's going to lead to or how you're going to make money with it. But as long as it meets those two criteria, you find it interesting and and it's somehow useful, then go and do it. And then the more that you do it, it, it goes very automatically because you're very passionate and interested in it. And the more you will do it, um, uh, the better you become at it. And then it's because it's useful. So uh, when I uh, started becoming really interested in, in entrepreneurship in frontier markets, for example, um, and to build that ecosystem with investors that are passionate, with uh, employees that are passionate, with entrepreneurs that are passionate, with, with this whole society that makes up to, to just make that work, um, you just jump into that. You just start somewhere in that, follow your passion, and eventually uh, some kind of job rolls out of that, whether that happens in one or in two or in three or in five years, you don't know. But And at that point, um, you have very much uh, uh, a job that is also your passion, and that really helps um, to achieve great goals and to also have, have a very a nice life uh, for yourself at the same time. So I would say that's really the best professional advice that I've uh, been given. And uh, then on a personal note, it's uh, more my grandparents who always, when I call them before anything else, they say, oh, have you seen your friends? How are they doing? And and then they always say like, yeah, uh, you know, we're very old um, and we don't really understand what's going on in this world nowadays, but we know this. In the end, it's about your friends and, and your family, no matter what. And please believe us, we, we've been here for a long time and they say it every time. And I, I think it's very, very true. So um, yeah, that's uh, their personal advice. Wow. Well, thank you very much uh, for, for sharing that as well as thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. It was so interesting to get an update on, on what's going on in Myanmar and kind of the investment ecosystem that's going on there, as well as to hear about your personal journey. So thanks again for taking the time and coming on and we really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks a lot uh, for having me and I'm uh, looking forward to uh, listen to the next podcast that are uh, coming up and uh, good luck. Wow.